Broadcasting from downtown Toronto, Canada, it's The Medicine Club, a new podcast about medicine, medical innovation, and medical culture. We're your hosts. I'm Dr. Samir Grover. I'm Dr. Kashif Prasada. I'm an emergency physician practicing in Toronto. And I'm a gastroenterologist based out of St. Michael's Hospital in downtown Toronto. Today we wanted to discuss uh, uh, a few issues um, that have come up in this rapidly changing field, again, related to the 2019-2020 coronavirus pandemic. Um, the first uh, issue we want to discuss was uh, critical supply shortages, uh, particularly shortages of um, uh, equipment that we're seeing as, uh, as workers in the hospitals that even now are coming very apparent that one would not have thought of, uh, would have led to shortages even uh, a week or two ago. Yeah, it's been quite dramatic. Uh, we're seeing shortages across the spectrum. Uh, there's been reports that ICU medications are running in short supply in the United States since they're dealing with ICU volumes, especially in New York City, um, that are far higher than they're used to. So this includes drugs like propofol, midazolam, um, ketamine. So this is going to involve stretched supply chains. I don't know if there's any clear plan uh, that's going to address this shortage anytime soon. I haven't heard anything myself. This also is applying to PPE. So hospitals and practitioners everywhere are being told to conserve and reuse when possible. And you know these N95 masks that we've been using were never meant to be reused. And so all kinds of protocols are being thrown around to uh, sterilize them, including one from Stanford involving you know, placing the N95 mask in an oven for at 70 degrees for a certain period of time. Uh, there's been other, other protocols as well. Um, some places just put them in a paper bag and let it sit for some time. Uh, but this is this would have all been unthinkable even a few months ago. Uh, Rani Griffith and Jaw had an interesting article as a perspective in uh, the March 25th, 2020 New England Journal of Medicine with respect to their take on uh, critical supply shortages, Kashif. Yes, definitely. I think what it points to is um, a systemic failure. Um, and I think they highlight this. We'll have links in the show notes. But basically, it's a, it's a failure of planning. It's a failure uh, of foresight. And it's unfortunately putting medical practitioners at, at um, unacceptable risk on the front lines. And, you know, for want of a 70 cent surgical face mask, people are putting themselves at risk you know, for $3 uh, gowns that now are going for 10, 20 times that price. It's incredible that we find ourselves in this position right now. What are the uh, solutions that are being raised in our jurisdiction in uh, in Ontario? Kash, have you been uh, incredibly involved with respect to uh, trying to link uh, uh, various critical supplies across into hospitals? So, a lot to their credit, our local companies have really stepped into work. So, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau mentioned in a recent press conference, 3,200 companies have stepped in to start making medical supplies. So, I'm told that uh, the textile association is coordinating. The, the creation of um, level one to four. So these are ANSI AAMI uh, standard gowns. So four is the OR impermeable gown and two is the isolation gowns that are being used, the heavier isolation gowns. So they've um, started production of this. I'm told also that surgical mask production um, is gonna reach uh, high levels in a few weeks as well. They're also um, working with local companies to build ventilators in quantity. Um, so we'll hopefully double or triple our stockpile in the next month or so. But all of this will unfortunately miss the peak of cases, which are, I think, expected in Ontario in about two to three weeks, and I think sooner in Quebec. So now as uh, we're being encouraged to conserve PPE, um, we've seen um, that hospitals are starting to build their guidelines around conservation and putting fairly 
you know, conservative PPE measures than would have been what we're seeing in China or even Italy. Now, as uh, uh, workers in the uh, the hospital, um, there, there's a very serious concern that uh, healthcare workers may be put under unnecessary risk, particularly when you take a look at the optics of the degree of uh, PPE that uh, that was used in particularly in China and the videos that have been circulating around with respect to that. Oh, especially like in China, you're seeing, you know, they're wearing these full body um, Tyvek suits. So Tyvek is a 3M brand and it's a suit uh, that covers pretty much the whole body except the hands and the feet and goes right up to the neck and covers the hair. And then they're placing an N95 and then a surgical mask on top of the N95 and then a face shield. And then a hairnet. And I think there's another hairnet below the Tyvek suit as well. Uh, two layers of gloves, uh, two layers of foot protection. So this, uh, you know, it's hard to believe. It's hard to, you know, put credence in the numbers coming out of communist China. But uh, they claim that no health workers were, uh, became sick after they instituted these measures. Now, what we're being asked to do, so they're, at, at most institutions where I'm associated with, we have two levels. So we have one for non um, uh, aerosol generating procedures. So that's basically a surgical mask and a level two gown and gloves. And then for aerosol generating procedures, it's N95 mask, face shield, uh, a level four gown, gloves, and um, that's it. So there's no mandated hair covering. Uh, there's no neck covers as well that you see in the Chinese uh, example. And I'm, I'm very worried that uh, myself and colleagues will get sick uh, following these guidelines. You're seeing um, physicians are trying to be uh, vocal about this, and you're seeing them disciplined or even fired, especially in the United States. And I've, I've heard from colleagues themselves that have been told to keep quiet about this issue if they become vocal in their groups. Yeah, I think uh, there was a recent article by uh, Dr. Chetan Sathya that highlighted this uh, specifically, um, even citing examples from Toronto with respect to real or perceived uh, threats of disciplinary action against healthcare workers with respect to use of PPE out of uh, uh, accord with what uh, a local hospital's guidelines were. No, exactly. And then we're, I understand the difficulty there. You know, the, the PPE has become a hyper-competitive market. Uh, from my business contacts, I've learned that Basically, rates, prices are going up um, every one to two days and that there's an incredible com competition to secure uh, space on flights, cargo flights coming from Asia, where most of the PPE is made. Um, so every state, every government in the world is competing for the same limited number of cargo slots. So it's, it's a situation that could have been anticipated. I think in Ontario, uh, we're going to be better off because... We have stockpiles left over from SARS, um, but um, you know that's going to give us some advantage, but I think not for long. And I'm hoping that local production catches up in time for um, the real peak of cases. Just, uh, just so that everybody knows, and I think everybody saw the article that was written about Kashif recently. He's a, a new dad recently. So that's a very special cameo you're hearing in the background. Yeah. Close the door before they come bursting in. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I just wanted to briefly uh, discuss uh, the Ontario Health uh, Personal Protective Equipment Guideline uh, for use during the COVID-19 pandemic. It was released on March 30th, uh, 2020. Um, specifically, it dealt with guidelines for use of N95s versus face masks, uh, guidelines for use of powered air purifying respirators or papers, um, guidelines on the allocation of procedural and surgical masks, and guidelines with respect to conserva uh, conservation of personal protective equipment. 
Two points that have come out of this that have been contentious, uh, and this has been compounded by uh, statements that have been made here in Ontario by various regulatory figures or by uh, and by our uh, our provincial uh, officer of health with respect to long-term care facilities and the use of uh, uh, personal protective equipment. Uh, we've seen already in uh, Toronto that there's been uh, outbreaks in more than one uh, long-term care facility of COVID-19, whereas the recommendations that are being made for uh, workers in those environments are very different than what's being made to healthcare workers. That's incredible what the chief medical officer said yesterday. I think that's a new low for our officials here. And considering that you know the probably the only vector in which covid uh was presented to these patients is from healthcare workers and uh, telling them not to wear masks so basically telling them not to uh to prevent the spread of droplets to their patients like i think that was an incredible incredible statement made i hope uh they changed their mind uh, i think um we've seen um hospitals are going to universal masking so that includes patients and visitors and uh practitioners and I'm shocked to, to see that this wasn't recommended in long-term care homes. In hospitals, um, two major areas that uh, have been hypothesized as, uh, as vectors have been radiology. Of course, the patients with COVID-19 will end up getting uh, x-rays and CT scans, um, albeit with, uh, with some judicious use of, uh, of, of that imaging that has uh, come out from our knowledge uh, um, of, uh, of the use of imaging in this outbreak to date. But the other area that was potentially a vector was endoscopy. Uh, I'm a gastroenterologist, so we, uh, we've, uh, we've started to see the personal uh, precautions that are being taken by workers inside the endoscopy uh, environment. The virus that causes COVID-19 is found inside uh, stool specimens. So the thought is that um, there is uh, the specific risk of, uh, of passage of COVID-19 as a vector in endoscopy. Also, we do procedures where uh, cameras go inside the mouth to visualize the esophagus and the stomach, and there's a lot of coughing and sputtering that takes place, which has led to many gastrointestinal societies uh, calling um, any esophageal intubation procedure like gastroscopy or ERCP an aerosol-generating medical procedure. Um, and then specific precautions, including um, hairnets and N95s and face shields and gowns, and foot covering and negative pressure rooms need to be used. However, that's not inside the Ontario Health Guidelines, despite the fact that uh, numerous other societies um, that are specific to gastroenterology or endoscopy had recommended that. No, it's, it's a consistent um, you know, pattern that we've seen um, in authorities around the world to be behind, basically, um, in this and catching up only when injury happens to healthcare workers, you know, it's, it's astounding. Like we've seen, we saw this happen in China. We saw it happen in Italy. I don't know why every jurisdiction needs to learn the same lessons over and over again. There's already been an outbreak of COVID-19 in an endoscopy unit in Montreal. I know whether that was related to community spread or spread within the unit itself is unknown. But, uh, but really, if that's what it takes in order to sort of change PPE guidelines, we're just going to be forever behind the curve. And hospitals will become the source of transmission in, the, in this epidemic, like it, had, it did early in Wuhan and it did, became in Italy. Now, Samir, I, I saw um, you posted recently on Twitter about um, this plexiglass um, box. And I've seen um, colleagues talk about um, sort of a barrier for aerosols and intubation. So I think um, the first of these was something called the aerosol box that I had seen. It's uh, um, a Creative Commons licensed open source uh, um, plexiglass box that was used, um, was created by a Taiwanese physician, Lai Sen Yung, um, at Mennonite Christian Hospital in, uh, in Taiwan. Um, and it basically um, 
allows a plexiglass see-through screen on three sides of a patient's head during intubation with holes in place uh, to allow an operator to function, presumably to minimize the amount of aerosols that make their way across to the person or the assistants that are doing the, uh, the intubation. So, and um, I think, you know, different workshops are adapting this. Uh, I've heard that plexiglass is sold out at various Home Depots, so you better get on it if you want to build one. Uh, but it looks promising. I've seen variations where people are using um, a plastic sheet over um, an intubation site. Um, and then I've seen some feedback on the original Taiwanese design that it needs to be widened for, you know, fat North Americans. <laughs> or, or if you need to widen it to put in uh, the glide scope setup as well. Um, so, yeah, it looks, it looks very promising. And I think we're going to try to get some for our departments for sure. Toronto's played a very major role with respect to improving on the Taiwanese design. And we put the link in the, uh, the show notes. Um, the COVID box, um, covidbox.org is a, a team of volunteers in Toronto that are seeking to manufacture and distribute um, very similar boxes for, uh, uh, for intubation. Now, the big advantage of these is that um, um, they're reusable if they can be cleaned and they're fairly cheap to make and are um, potentially something that could uh, affect the, uh, the amount of PPE that's required uh, when doing aerosol generating procedures. And particularly when we see the pandemic enter into the developing world, I think solutions like this are going to be essential. Yeah, especially with limited stocks of PPE. Now, um, another thing to discuss, uh, we've seen some change in opinion about uh, the public wearing masks. I, I think you and I both recall at a time when people were in public, experts were saying that, you know, wearing masks is useless. It's actually going to make you more prone to infection because you're going to fiddle with it. But then, you know, the evidence showing countries that have universal mask uh, um, in public wearing like South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, where you see the, the curve on their epidemic spread and it's much more favorable than ours. I think um, you look at examples like the Czech Republic, which basically in two days went to universal mask wearing. And now you're seeing Austria making it compulsory and you can't basically go into any public establishment or any store or restaurant without one. I think we might see finally a turn into uh, masks for all. Okay. Um, uh, the image that's shown on social media all the time is uh, where they basically circle the curve and put down no masks on the ones that are going exponential and masks on the one that have, ones that have flattened. Now, there's many other public health initiatives that are in place in, the, in those areas, but, but masking is one of them. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, I think we could even replicate the other public health measures they've done, but at least we can start. Like, there's, an, there's a great article on Medium going around showing, um, you know, collecting studies on droplet spread and um, with masks and without masks. And it's pretty significant. Even um, the surgical mask, the level, the level two surgical mask, will filter a lot of droplet particles. Um, and even a, a basic cotton or tea cloth uh, mask worn will filter uh, a number of droplets coming from the public. So this is one way that you know we can bring back normal life faster um, than if we don't do it. And you know, people argue that you know. Americans or North Americans culturally, you know, are free, will never agree to it. But we're seeing this widely adopted in European countries now. And I think people, you know, if this is, if this can help us return to a normal life, then I think uh, this is, this will be adopted. What do you think about the balance in terms of PPE supplies? Um, are there enough surgical masks to go around the public should be using them or will we be cannibalizing PPE from, uh, from healthcare workers? I think the, the stocks are pretty precarious, um, giving it to the public. Um, I think we have enough 
uh, where we, where I work at least for patients in the hospital to wear them, but there's no way, you know, 14 million Ontarians can, will be able to be served by the stocks that we have until, you know, local production starts. And I'm told, you know, companies here are looking at making a hundred million masks uh, a week or so. So that's, that's something to look forward to. But for now, I think the public, there's a lot of tutorials online on how to make uh, basic cotton masks, sewing them at home, how to make masks out of uh, coffee filters. Um, I think there's comparative studies that show, you know, you can use vacuum cleaner bags, but not the ones, you know, don't use fiberglass filters, but like the HEPA vacuum cleaner bags you can use. So, you know, any, even, even just a, uh, a simple scarf over the face is better than nothing right now. The, uh, other thing we wanted to talk about briefly was the uh, the how's my flattening site, Kashif. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great site uh, put together um, um, by I think it was Ben Fine on um, Twitter. He tweeted about it, so it collects a number of data sources um, from uh, public sources and tries to make predictions on um, epidemic curves for Ontario. Uh, it is Ontario specific, but I'm sure there's initiatives elsewhere. But I think this speaks to um, there is a definite lack of openness regarding st statistics. We you sort of have to grab the information that you can from, you know, sources that uh, should be releasing it, including the I think the Critical Care Society of Ontario has a dashboard. Some people leak out um, screenshots. I think the last one from two days ago showed that we have 84 intubated, ventilated patients out of 2,000 ICU beds in Ontario. Um, so a number that's growing, but you know that data is two days old. Um, we, sh you know, practitioners need to know, public needs to know about these kinds of things. There's all kinds of initiatives um, to get hospitals and practitioners equipped and, you know, by the civil society and companies and they should have access to this data. So I think, you know, helping the open source movement, helping um, civil society is a goal that should be there and sites like How's My Flattening is a great, uh, great contribution to that. I saw that uh, Andrew Buzeri on Twitter uh, put that down as one of the putative examples of, uh, of a benefit of uh, a single-payer healthcare system like we have in Canada is that we should be able to get access to all the data and use the data effectively. And but here's, here's the critical flaw in our single-payer. We have, it's basically run by bureaucrats who are not used to being accountable to anybody. So we don't know who they are. We don't know what their work processes is. I've, I've had good authority that, you know, they didn't really look into the PPE shortage until about a week and a half ago. So <laughs> like, there's no way to engage with them or to discuss with them, like, uh, especially when things are falling apart around you. But uh, I think uh, what we're seeing worldwide is really the, the true benefit of open source movements, even as something as, uh, as simple as Wikipedia, probably the poster child of uh, digital information uh, that's, uh, that's open online. Uh, if you take a look at the, uh, 2019-2020 coronavirus pandemic page. It is a wealth of uh, information uh, updated constantly, um, curated by people that are trying to take the, uh, the nonsense off the page, um, changing sort of by the minute as, uh, as data comes across. Um, on the, uh, the Wikipedia Weekly podcast, I, uh, I, I listened to it uh, earlier in the week. Um, Andrew Lee was uh, discussing the uh, a tremendous uh, explosion in number of coronavirus-specific pages on Wikipedia so that the, the open information with respect to uh, the pandemic really gets transmitted across and the impacts are really quite known. No, exactly. I think um, it's only, I hope this is a trend that continues beyond. Like we even saw, um, uh, was it Medtronic open source one of their ventilator designs this week? Uh, a bit late, but you know, better than nothing. Yeah. So I hope, um, 
open source health. We're seeing, you know, wide adoption of uh, telemedicine. All of these trends, I think, are positive ones that hope will carry on after the crisis. And, and even in news media, they were rapid to, to uh, turn their COVID-19 articles into open for all. Um, the Canadian newspapers, you can, and the New York Times, you can basically access any coronavirus article that they think is uh, of, of direct relevance to somebody's health right now uh, for free. Um, oh, yeah. And also Stat News is a great source. Um, Helen Branswell is a Canadian journalist who works for them, and it's been turning out amazing quality articles. Uh, New England Journal and other journals' uh, coronavirus pages as well are free to the public. So it took, a, it took a pandemic for the world to realize the extreme benefit of making data open and free. Exactly. And, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, there's a lot of criticism of Silicon Valley before all this, but now you see all these other pillars of civilization collapsing. And it's, you know, tools like, uh, you know, Zoom and other things that are sort of holding us all up right now. So I think, you know, I hope it continues. Great. Now, I um, wanted to go over uh, some issue on health resource allocation. So that includes, you know, what, um, when to decide uh, on ventilators. You know, that's a very controversial issue. What to do if your hospitals are filling to the brim with patients, like what we're seeing in New York City now. Um, at, I've seen, um, based on Ontario Health has some guidelines um, that I think are based on the old uh, Ontario pandemic plan from 2005. Um, these uh, basically have um, exclusion criteria that um, basically ratchet down as, ratchet up when the crisis gets severe. So in the most um, extreme crises, basically they will exclude from ventilator care anyone with advanced metastatic cancer, anyone with severe cognitive impairment, severe trauma, uh, advanced neurodegenerative diseases like ALS or Parkinson's, or severe strokes, end-stage lung injury or heart or liver injuries, um, high clinical frailty scores. Um, that's, that was just released on the 28th. So we're seeing, um, and I don't think it's a public document yet. I don't know if there's a link to it, but we do have a PDF of it. Um, we're, we're gonna go through um, health resource allocation in detail uh, in our next episode. Um, and we're hopeful to get uh, something a little bit more um, uplifting, uh, stages of, uh, of how society may reopen after this and what the predictions are and uh, vaccines and what vaccine de uh, development progress is. Yeah, um, exactly. So thanks very much, uh, everyone, for listening. And um, we're trying to get uh, the podcasts out uh, as uh, soon as we can to de disseminate them. Um, so we're aiming to get these across at least uh, one a week, if not two a week for you. Great. And keep fighting. Um, stay safe. And um, we'll see you uh, next time.